Good evening, everyone. Um, I want to welcome everyone to Narrative Medicine Rounds. My name is Vipu Gauda. I'm a general internist here at Columbia, and I'm the uh, director of clinical practice to the program of Narrative Medicine, which is really about taking the work that we're all doing here in classrooms and with students and taking it to clinical sites and, and really thinking deeply about how uh, involvement with stories and involvement with understanding one another's perspectives helps us take care of patients better and helps us engage better as team members on healthcare teams. Um, it's a very special evening tonight. Um, I do want you to take a look at your calendars for the next couple months. Um, April 6th, we have Helena Hansen with us. She's a psychiatrist and an anthropologist at NYU and a filmmaker who made the film Managing the Fix, documentary about race, class, and addiction pharmaceuticals. And May 4th, we have George Yancey with us, a professor of philosophy at Emory, um, who, has, who will speak to us on a topic titled White Narratives in the Black Body, How It Feels to Be a Black Problem. So we hope that you will join us for that. Um, and introducing our speaker this evening is Dr. James Marion. He is a graduate of Columbia's Medical School, trained in internal medicine here as well. He's a gastroenterologist who now works at Mount Sinai, and he's the Director of Education and Outreach for the Inflammatory Bowel Center at Mount Sinai. Dr. Marion. Narrative medicine, let me set a scene. A payphone in a dingy closet, in a dingier foyer, in a somewhat dingy student cooperative in Berkeley, California, rings. And I pick it up because I live there, and it's 1985, and Andy France is calling me from downstairs, telling me that I've been admitted to Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, and congratulations. And he especially wanted to know about when I played Demetrius in the bits on the high street. That's really what he wanted. <laughs> Fast forward, I move to New York. I accept the invitation to attend, of course. I matriculate. I meet my wife. We uh, train here, obviously. I meet my wife. We have two lovely daughters, one of whom is going to start at Bryn Mawr next fall. But when our girls were in preschool, enter Colin McCann. Uh oh. Colin and I were, at that, that, point, at that point, we were both pretty chubby, at least I was. And uh, we decided to start running together to lose weight and stay healthy. And as two Irish men with what would be better genes to try to run away from death. That's a Got to keep a pretty good pace in my family. Um, initially, we, we, <laughs> we explored each other's stories, so there was narrative there. But after we got to know each other on these runs, and I, I think we've run about five or 6,000 miles together since then over the last 12 years. We run at least once a week, sometimes twice, six miles at a pop, although we started out at one mile because <laughs> we were really sore. And we were really tired, and we were really bad. Um, so we start this running. Colin says to me, I'm working on a story. And could I ask you a medical question? It's not about me. It's about a man named Corrigan. And what sort of condition would produce these symptoms? So he, knew what he, he knew what he wanted them to look like. He said, what could produce these symptoms that could be confused with heroin addiction and needle injury on the arm? I said, oh, that's easy, TTP. What is TTP? That started another few runs. And long story short, he started asking me deeper questions about not just his medical condition, but the condition of my soul. Hmm. Would you say that was fair? Absolutely. So we started this discussion. He's, he's going to start talking to I promise. <laughs> we start this discussion and try to imagine what a 1970s priest uh, laboring under the uh, uh, Deacon Expressway or the Bruckner Expressway in the Bronx 
uh, ministering to prostitutes, what his overall philosophy of life might be. And I said, well, I used to know a priest who was like that, and I, I gotta tell you, what he said to me stuck with me. And we started the conversation, and it went further and further into my own approach to the patients that I often took care of who lived across the street in the armory when I was a medical student and later a resident here running the emergency room. It's the second year you really got to know a lot of the guy, the mm -hmm. one, the, many of the 1,100 men living across the street, but it was a homeless shelter. So, Tom, I didn't know, was a physician at that point. He was doing a biopsy on my soul. <laughs> and I can actually give you the pathologic reading of that biopsy today, if you'd like to hear it. It's very short. What Corrigan wanted was a fully believable God, one you could find in the grime of the everyday. He consoled himself with the fact that in the real world, when he looked closely into the darkness, he might find the presence of a light, damaged and bruised, but alive all the same. He, wait, he wanted, quite simply, for the world to be a better place, and he was going, and he was in the habit of hoping for it. So I could wear that on a button, and that was, this is my path report of my soul, if you're interested. And I don't know what page it's on and let the great world spin. But we managed to do it. So with that introduction, I'd like to introduce my dear friend Colin McCann, who is now going to talk about It's an amazing thing to be introduced by uh, a man I consider to be my best friend. Um, and uh, yeah, we run together. We go around the park. Uh, we talk theology. We talk medicine. Uh, I glean from him. I listen far more than I talk, because I'm lucky. Uh, and he's smart, and, and he's a better runner than I am. So I'm conserving my energy uh, as we go along. Um, not only that, but I will tell you that uh, I once was his patient for a, uh, a very strange uh, hand infection that um, had me in hospital um, and had certain doctors um, come in and stand very far away from me. Oh. Um, and they were in gowns and my kids weren't allowed to come in and it was, uh, what was the, 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 I forget what it was again, it was like one of the weird MRSA. Yeah, you had MRSA. Yeah, MRSA. Um, but they couldn't recognize it and they were hitting me with um, a sort of nuclear cocktail of vancomycin and uh, whatever else, which I ended up being on for six months. Sure, anyway, it doesn't really matter. I will tell you this, that there were doctors and nurses who came into the room and stayed far away and, and talked at me in uh, that third person, sort of, um, with that distance. Uh, Jim came in from the very get-go, sat at the side of the bed and looked me in the eye and made a narrative out of what was a very scary thing and made sense of the narrative. And, and I think that that's extraordinary. And I've watched him and I've watched other doctors and I, and I have great respect for, for all of the people that I met down at the end of the room and what you do and what, and what Rita does here um, and what, um, you know, you're, there's an amazing collection of people, not least one of my favorite novelists of all time. You know, I hope he's still here, I don't get to leave early. Is Chris Adrian still here? Um, I think, he had, I think he had to leave. Anyway, um, there, um, my respect for what it is that you happen to do um, is accentuated by the fact that it's kind of what I want to do. Uh, so as a writer, what I'm interested in is not necessarily recognizing only what the disease happens to be. I think more or less anyone can recognize what the disease happens to be. Um, and you can do it with a series of tests, and they can be sent off to these various labs, and, 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 and everyone can say, well, this is what it is, and this is what you have, and maybe they can uh, you know, put you on a path towards healing. But really, what I want to do is examine beyond the darkness, beyond the prognosis, and say, what is it that we can do to learn how to heal one another? 
Uh, how is it that we can interpret one another's stories? How is it that we can learn to listen to one another and to watch one another and to investigate one another and find out what he would have called the music of the human spirit, which is really essentially what one wants to do and needs to do uh, if we are going to properly heal. I'm preaching, I know, to the converted, but you know how difficult that happens to be. I know how difficult it happens to be as a writer, um, because one of the things that, 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 that occurs when you write in this way, when you want to write about recovery, when you want to write about grace, when you want to write about beauty, you want to write about uh, difficulty and, and, and achievement, is that you have to get into the darkness. Mm -hmm. And you have to get to the very darkest place. The very best optimists and the very best thinkers are ones who will go so deep and so dark that they can accompany any cynic. Anybody who has anything at all dark to say about the human spirit and they will agree with them because the world is a dark place. It's all that shit and that torment and difficulty that is there. And, and, and you have to be able to go down alongside, accompany that person to the, the, the seventh ring uh, and then sit there for a while and understand them and even look them in the eye and say, my word, yes, you are correct. Yes, this is, this is a, 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 you know, a dark, dreary, tormented place. And then what you have to do, I think, as a writer, and possibly, I won't preach to, to, to you, possibly as a, a, a medical person, what you have to do is say, so what? What you have to do is say, I agree with you, it's dark. Now we must vault away somehow from the darkness and find, and, and having the muscularity of the cynic, right? Having the same muscularity as the cynic, find an even more muscular or interesting place uh, for the human spirit to reside. And, 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 and this is what I found in my friendship with Jim and other people who are involved in the medical profession and other people who are, on the, uh, who are out on the streets in the social sphere looking at people, that you have to be available to be accused of sentimentality. And then you have to get away from the sentimentality. They, they will do it. Um, but my feeling about all of this is that the cynics are the ones who live in the cloud of their own sentimentality. Sentimentality is a limited landscape. Sentimentality is a very limited place. Those who are sentimental want to remain in one place. The cynics actually remain in one place. The bad doctors, bad uh, medical practitioners actually remain, I presume, in one place. The good ones are the ones who have the courage of the convictions to be able to sort of say, I hope to be able to destroy that notion of sentimentality uh, by embracing sentiment. And sentiment, as you know, is a deeply, deeply, deeply different thing. Sentiment is that person who comes in and sits at your bed and puts their hand on your, on your elbow and so looks you in the eye and says, I don't know what this is. You know, instead of like standing in the, in the far corner of the room and saying, well, you have X, Y, Z, and we're going to give you a tri treatment of vancomycin, da, 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 da. And really, the true bravery comes in sometimes acknowledging that we don't know what it is that's going on. Uh, and we don't know what it is that we want to say, except it's coming from a place of deep human engagement and deep human emotion. And so as a novelist, that's what I've been, uh, been engaged in, uh, I hope, for, for, for many, many years. And I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly learning. I realize my limitations. Uh, I never write the book that I, I've wanted to write. It's never as good as I wanted it to be. Every time I finish a new book, I am convinced that I'm a charlatan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm convinced I can, I can never do it again. Uh, I am exhausted. 
uh, I feel like I've you know been on the on the ward perhaps for you know like years and years and years, and now I'm finally coming out. And then and then I start to look around again, and I start to read again, and I start to read some poetry, and I start to read other stories, and I start to listen to other people's stories. Um, and, and, and I start to fill up again, um, and, and, and then I embark on, on, on a whole new project. Um, but uh, the long and short of it is that, uh, I, and I hope you understand that I really mean this, I admire in the most incredible way uh, what, what you guys do um, in these places. Uh, I've seen it firsthand whether it be through a friend who had a, a, a brain trauma, whether it be when my son falls off his bicycle and he gets looked after, whether it be me, myself, going in and having this weird uh, hand infection. Um, and I think it is acutely important. And I think the way that we intersect is through storytelling. Um, and uh, So I will give you my basic philosophy is that stories are our vast democracy. Um, now, I'm thinking about the word democracy in light of yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that man could tell a story, actually. <laughs> Have you heard him tell a story yet? No. He only talks about himself. No. I am awesome, I am great, I'm this, I do that. And, uh, he's not interested in otherness whatsoever. Um, I, uh, I learned this by uh, taking a bicycle across the United States at the age of 21. I went about uh, 12,000 kilometers for about a year and a half. Uh, and I, uh, I listened to people's stories as I went along. I was blessed. I was so lucky. And everybody wanted to, me to, wanted to tell me a story. And it didn't matter who they were, how rich they were. And this was important for me. Sometimes we value the poor. A, you know, in, 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 in a way. This is a, a moral quandary for the, for, for, for the writer, too. Sometimes we think, oh, maybe the poor have better stories. No, they don't. Uh, you know, maybe the, may, maybe the white people have better stories. No, they don't. Maybe the black people have better stories. No, they don't. This is the most, it is the quintessential democracy. The ability to tell a story goes across all borders, all boundaries. And, and it destroys things in between. And it does not matter how good your story happens to be. It's not a contest. It's not an Olympics. Mm. This is the thing. And stories, we tell stories because we have a deep need to heal, I believe. And, 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 and when we listen to people's stories, and when we engage with them, uh, we create something entirely new for how we ourselves operate in the world and how those people operate in the world. Um, I don't want to sound like I'm lecturing, but I learned how to listen. And what a joy that was to learn how to listen to, 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 to other people. Um, and it became, nowadays my life is about talking. I wish I could shut up and listen to everybody else. Um, but when I, when I get down and settle down with my computer or my pen, um, I try to listen to the stories that are there at hand. Um, I will tell you very briefly, and then I would like to open it up because there are so many interesting people that I've met and there were so many interesting questions already. I think we could cover a whole range of topics and I'd like even Jim to stand up here with me and, and help me out. Um, I will tell you that I want to talk for two minutes about a nonprofit organization that I am uh, the president of and co-founder um, with uh, Lisa Consiglio and a number of other writers and activists and artists, uh, including Toby Wolf, including Reza Aslan, including Rob Spillman, Ishmael Bea, who is a child soldier in Sierra Leone, uh, and a number of different people, Salman Rushdie's involved, Steve's involved. Our basic premise is that we want to exchange stories. I want to tell your story, and, and you will tell mine. It, we call it Fearless Hope Through Radical Empathy. It's not a storytelling organization. We get young people together, generally 16 and 17 year olds, from all over the world. From South Africa, from Ireland, from Mexico, from Newtown, Connecticut, from South Side of Chicago, from the Bronx, 
um, from Israel, from, from, from Palestine. We get them together to listen to one another, first of all, like apprentice doctors, to listen to one another and then tell the other story back. So if Jim and I were together, I would stand up and say, Hi, my name is Jim Marion. And when I was growing up in California, my father died when I was a young boy, and, and I would tell him back that story of himself. He would stand up and say, hi, my name is Colin McCann. When I was 12 years old, you know, this happened to me. This is an incredible, I, I have to tell you, this is the most incredible thing. It sounds simple, but I have seen it change lives all over the world. What it does is it forces you to listen to the other person's story and it forces you to hear your own story be told back to you. And sometimes, guess what? The story is told back to you in the wrong way. And we have to be very careful. Because stories are not some airy-fairy, up there, in the air sort of thing. Like some people want to make believe that, 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 that oh, you're a storytelling organization or you're, you're talking about narrative, it means nothing. No, stories are absolutely the currency of the moment. They are absolutely vital. And we can get them wrong. Unless we forget, stories have sent our children to war, even in the last 15 years. Right? Fictions have, have, have put people in all sorts of um, terrible positions. Stories are powerful. Language is an incredible weapon to have. And so we have through narrative four, which is what the organization is called, Narrative 4, the numeral 4. We do narratives for peace, narrative for the environment, narrative for the end of bullying, narrative for all sorts of things uh, that, that, that are, uh, are quintessential uh, to how, how we operate in the world. We uh, are a two-year-old or three-year-old organization now, um, and we have artists as the front people, and then, let me tell you something, my absolute heroes, because my wife is one, and, 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 and uh, we have teachers behind that. And then behind that, we have uh, thousands and thousands of students. Uh, last year, we had, uh, the official number was 22,000 stories exchanged between kids from all over the world. It was probably closer to 200,000 in the end. Um, and basically, what I feel it is about, and please go onto our website, it's about expanding the lungs of the world. That is what we would like to do, because uh, we would like for others to understand that there are others. Uh, and once you understand that there are others, your own life gets changed in all sorts of, uh, I feel, extraordinary ways. I was going to read a little bit from 13 Ways of Looking. Um, I think uh, I'd rather, uh, if I get a chance, maybe I will. Um, but I think I'd rather chat because there are lots of interesting people here who probably have lots of interesting things to say. And I would like to invite my friend Jim up to um, accompany me and throw a few words into the microphone uh, when he feels uh, appropriate. Because, I mean, really, this is when we're talking about narrative medicine. This is narrative, this is medicine, but this is medicine and this is narrative. So. Is this okay to, 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 so, um, to uh, open it up to... Let's open it up, the floor is yours for questions. I understood you correctly, you made a very interesting statement about how after you finish writing a book of fiction, you're exhausted and you think you can't do it again, but then you start to silt up with stories from other people to get enough together that you dare again to write another piece of fiction. I'm very interested in what you would think of as the connection between stories being anecdotes, yeah. people relating their experiences, and literary stories. Right. Yeah. Well, this goes back to the notion of what you know what is true. Well, you know, stories are not true. Let's face it. All these people talk about true stories. There's no difference between fiction and nonfiction. That's crazy. Uh, you know, the word fiction means to shape. It does not mean to, to invent or to lie. It comes from fictus, to shape. All stories are, all stories are shaped. 
Uh, and everybody tells a story for a particular reason. I have never come upon a single person in the world who's ever been able to tell the same story exactly the same way twice. It's impossible. So all stories are sort of anecdotes in a way, and all stories are morals as well. But really what, what, what you've got to get to is the texture of the truth that is behind the story. Um, it seems to me that there's something embedded within every story that is the nugget of its own peculiar truth. And I'm sure that happens then, uh, you know, as a doctor. Do you listen for, listen for that sort of stuff? All the time. It, it's always frustrating to the medical students and the residents when I come in and get a part of the story or hear an inflection of the story that they didn't hear. How did you do that? Yeah. Well, I've been doing it for a little bit longer than you have. So I agree. Yeah. I think the best doctors will put themselves in the other person's shoes and try to imagine what it feels like to be, you know, 47 years old Puerto Rican smoker and, 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 and you know, have a cut on the bottom of your heel and thinking, you know, there's not so much more about that. It's about her apartment at home and maybe the lead paint and, 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 and you know, maybe the fact that, that, that she bounced the check and all these other things that, that, are, that are dealing with, you know, the, the makeup of the story. And the one thing I do say about stories is that stories do not be begin, they don't begin. As an artist, they begin, I have to find a beginning, and they never end. And the best artists will actually never actually finish a story for you. Uh, they should allow you to step into the story and interpret the story for uh, yourself. Just a brief comment to the beautiful things you've just been saying. My 24-year-old uh, daughter uh, was in a medieval mystery play at Pitzer College two years ago, and these are the following words she sang over and over again there, uh, composed by uh, a musical group named Durer, D-U-R-E-R, D-U-R-E-R. We begin at the end and we end in the middle, bit by bit, we mend. That's nice. That's nice. Thank you. Questions? Questions down the back there. I can just speak really loudly if that works too. That's perfect. <laughs> That's a good voice. So, not up to you. Uh, earlier you mentioned sometimes someone will hear their story back and it will be wrong. Wrong based on whose definition. And could you talk a little more about that? Because I find that sometimes when you tell a story, maybe you don't know all of it yourself until it's you know, entering that external space. Right. So what do you mean by wrong, necessarily? Well, you might feel it's wrong. Uh, that maybe they got, a, maybe you say, I was born in, you know, 1965. And they say, well, I was born in 1967. They might get facts wrong. Um, but facts in the end don't really matter. Facts are mercenary things. You can pack them up and send them wherever you want to go. What they really should get right is what I was talking about, the texture of your story, the heart of your story. Um, and I think there's a big difference be between these two things. We get hung up on facts, uh, and we get hung up on statistics, we get hung, hung up on metrics and all these things, when really the heart of, of, of what we need to, to do is find uh, the vitality, the, 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 human, the, the human spirit that's there. Now, most of the time, when we have exchanged stories, and we've exchanged hundreds of thousands of stories with kids now, and with, 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 with other populations, I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, people get it right. You know why? Because they've already given responsibility to the listener to tell their story, and they feel an equivalent responsibility to hand it back to the person that they're listening to. And, and, and that's what's incredible. There's this reciprocal relationship. So most of the time, in the narrative four model, which is a very, yeah, a very, I mean, we have a model that we've, we've built, um, and we have to be careful with these kids who are saying these things. We have to be able to shepherd them. Have to be able to use their energy. Have to, when they're told a story, they have to go back out into the community and use that. It's not just that they, it's a once-off, and, and, and then they're gone and discarded. No. We've got to work with them to bring them and to do all sorts of things uh, post uh, story exchange. But the most important thing we tell them is that if you're going to tell the truth, find the heart of the truth, the texture of the truth, uh, and then 
that that's fair enough. That 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 getting little bits and pieces around the edges wrong, that's not really um, that's not really a big deal. I don't know whether that would work uh, in a medical sense, would it? Because you you don't want to get anything wrong. Depends on the attending. <laughs> um, I, I had a follow-up to what you just said. You know, you said we have to be very careful with how we treat the stories and the follow-up we have to do with, with the kids that are involved in your program. And there seems to be an emphasis on getting the story right. Can you talk a, a little bit about what are the harms? What are the what are the damages that can be done with getting the story wrong? Ishmael Bea, who's my uh, vice president. Uh, and he was a child soldier uh, from, uh, from, from, from Africa. And he wrote that beautiful book, A Long Way Long, or The Long Way Home. Um, he said to me, he said, this is one of the most important programs. He's seen it in, in operation. Uh, and he said, but he said to me, right at the very beginning, he said, we have to be very careful. Because if we go into a community and we show them another life and another way to live their life, and then we drop them, uh, and, 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 then, and then we just sort of go out there, oh, you told your story. He said, that is the way you create warlords. You show them something, and then you say, you can't have it. So we have follow-up programs. We have ways to engage kids in the community. In Newtown, Connecticut, after the massacre, there were a lot of good things done. Like people in the medical community all over the place. There were therapy dogs went in, there were counselors went in, there were people brought the kids down to Broadway, you know, brought them to Broadway shows. But the kids were saying things like, well, why am I going to Broadway? Because I got shot at. So we ran the narrative four program in, and for the first time they weren't talking about themselves, they were talking about other people. Mm. And in making the leap into other people, they found a value in, in themselves. And so they were able to actually get away and heal uh, in, in, in a certain way. A lot of those kids are now down in George Washington University. One Sarah Clements, she's running like a gun and violence awareness program and, and things like that. Uh, they came out of their trauma. Mm. They came out of the, 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 that incredible difficulty that, 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 that uh, they experienced and started to change it for the good. But I think that, that, that part of it was learning this notion of otherness uh, first, rather than talking about themselves. Jim, Jim has seen this too. I just want to make a quick comment and a question. Just finished reading Sherry Turkle's book about reclaiming conversation. It makes the observation that younger people are becoming less empathetic because they don't reflect. But I wonder, is there, is there any similarity to Freudian psychoanalysis as to what you're doing? Is there any similarity to Freudian analysis? Um, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, certainly, there's no conscious, uh, uh, you know, uh, similarity. We, we, have, we have. I have all the time. I've been thinking about this. Been thinking about uh, Freud. Um, actually, one of the things that I do, in, in just as a little sidebar in relation to my writing, I tend to write a lot about female characters, and I like being in the mind of a female character. And my joke is always, don't put me on the Freudian couch for that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would like to explore that as an idea, because um, I think it could, could, could be something positive. But I definitely think that, 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 that um, you know, this notion of reclaiming the conversation and the kids are less empathetic uh, now. Well, I don't know. We can teach empathy. This is the other thing. At the age of two and three and four, we can now we now understand that we can teach empathy. There's all sorts of incredible programs happening, you know, up at Yale University. I'm sure they're here as well, um, where we can actually like teach kids that, you know, to make that shotgun empathetic leap uh, into 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 the other. Following up on your comments about uh, trauma, moving on from trauma, I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit about um, the notion of trauma and maybe um, victimhood uh, in your stories. Uh, having just finished 13 Ways, it seems to be something of a thread that ties those stories together. Yeah. Um, well, I was just going to tell you a little story about a trauma that happened to me. Some of you might have read about it a little bit. Um, 
and Jim actually lived through it with me in many, in many respects. Um, so I was up at Yale University giving the uh, keynote speech on uh, empathy of all things and came back early from a dinner one night. Was, like, this guy was beating the holy living daylights out of his wife on the street. And I intervened and I stopped it, uh, just verbally. That's a, I, didn't, I didn't try to fight him, I didn't try to confront him. Uh, and I told him to leave her alone <laughs> with an Irish accent. A couple of F words in there. Um, and uh, he did. He left her alone. Big guy, quarterback looking, blonde girl on the street. She's bleeding. And um, all the people scattered from around. And so, so that ran. I, I was a Boy Scout for the day. I said, Great. I picked her up from the ground. I said, yeah, Listen, you shouldn't be with a guy like that. I kept looking over my shoulder, making sure he wasn't around. He'd gone all the way down the street. What I didn't know that was that he'd circled the block. Mm. He came around, and, 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 and a few minutes later, we were standing outside my hotel. Uh, he took me out from behind, and I woke up two hours later going into an MRI machine. Uh, not for sympathy, because I got loads of sympathy from, 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 from lots of people, but I was pretty messed up uh, for a while. And had lots of complications, including uh, all sorts of uh, blood stuff and whatever. Uh, but that doesn't matter. Um, what really matters is that uh, I got a chance to tell my story. They, they arrested him, and I got a chance to tell my story in court. This was an incredible thing. Because mm. uh, I could talk about my trauma, and then I could talk, talk about what I felt should happen to uh, that, that guy, and if he should go to prison. I don't believe in prison, certainly not uh, in that particular case. I would much rather him do community service and so on. And, and, but, but the most important thing is, and myself and Jim would be running around the park talking about this for oh, so many times, I said to him, I forgive him, but I don't excuse him. I think that's really important. We don't excuse people for the shit that they do. Right? It's not right that he does that sort of thing. And he should be branded, and he was branded. And he got two and a half years, it was suspended, thankfully, but he got two and a half years and he got probation and stuff like that. But do you remember the conversations we had about that? You should talk about that just for a second. Well, it was hard to see him immediately after uh, he came back down from New Haven, so I, I think I had a little bit more anger than you did. You were maybe a little more dazed than My I was. Face was the same. <laughs> but yeah, finding that fine line between forgiveness and uh, uh, perhaps enabling this person to go out and do the same thing again to somebody else is what I was most concerned about. Uh, so I was in a preventative mode, you might say. I see. If we were running around the park, my first question to Jim would, would be, how do you forgive these people? When, when you find like somebody in, in the hospital bed, you know that she's been beaten, and the husband is there, how, how do you as a doctor forgive that person? That's not my role. Well, uh, is it? Okay, so that's interesting. No, that's not my role as a physician. But as a person? I think we should start running at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but as a person, it is, because I know that, 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 that you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, again, there has to my my job at that point is not right. to, to do any forgiving at all. It's to find out what the problem is and try to solve it. Right. But then, do you go home at night and do you think about the forgiveness? Of course. Yeah. Right. See, that's what's interesting to me. That's what's really interesting to me. What, what what you guys do? You have a job here, and then you also have that the consequences of the job at the same time. Another question. I don't even know if I answered this question very well. We have a question here and then we'll go back here. Okay. So, um, so first of all, I want to thank you. This has been fascinating. Um, you're talking and people in the audience are asking about some of the therapeutic ramifications of this kind of narrative and sharing. I know of groups that are using similar processes to very uh, consciously move towards social change. The notion that you take warring groups, so the Israeli adolescents and Palestinian adolescents, and you have them share their narratives. And hearing it can be a fundamental and pivotal change event, transformational event. I'm wondering, though, if what's your reaction to using the exchange of story and narrative in that way. Is there something manipulative about using it? Yeah. Anyway, that's yeah. it. You know what? I don't believe in direct conflict resolution. 
and, 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 and um, if I have a Palestinian kid and an, an, an Israeli kid, I don't want them telling one another stories. It's too obvious. If I get a chance, I will take the, the Israeli kid and hook her up with a, a kid in the south side of Chicago. Tell her story first. And the Palestinian kid go to Haiti and tell the story of the kid in, in, in Haiti. In doing that, it goes back to my phrase, expanding the lungs of the world. You, when, 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 when the lungs expand like that, you can go back into your own community and recognize things differently. But when you get told that you must do direct conflict resolution, to me it doesn't work. So we've run it in Belfast, and we have done it like with kids in West Belfast and East Belfast, but really, where it truly happens, where things really start to get wonderful, is when you meet somebody that you shouldn't have ever met in your life. You meet a Mexican kid, and then you think, oh Jesus, the world is so much bigger. Like, and my little problems? Mm. Wow, uh, let me go back in and think about that Protestant or that Catholic differently. Mm. Uh, so, um, my, my philosophy is no direct conflict resolution. Uh, it just feels too obvious, and, 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 and uh, I think we can go at it in, in such a better way. It's like a poetic impulse. I like the impulse towards mystery, the impulse towards what you don't know. I tell my students, don't write about what you know. Write what you want to know. Or even better, write what you don't know, which is actually seems logically, philosophically impossible to write what you don't know. But if you write what you supposedly don't know, you will write those things that you knew but weren't entirely aware of. And the same thing in storytelling. You know, it, 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 the, the more foreign it happens to be, the, 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 the better off, I think.
not, it's not uncommon. I'm sure you've had the experience with you have an electronic record now. Patients will often leave with the note you've written or with the report, or they'll get a report that I send to them. About half the time, they'll call and say, that's not quite yeah. what I said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Story and the story is still open-ended. 
And, and nobody's telling you exactly what it, what it is that you should have done or shouldn't have done, but you have a story, and this is part of the, part of the beauty, and part of the, like the, um, the embrace of mystery, which is just really uh, sort of fantastic. And uh, I have a phrase now that I've been, been, been saying a lot because I just do, do believe it, that I think death takes away a lot, of th a lot of things from us, you know, but it can't take away our stories. And that's, I think that, 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 that's pretty important. Uh, and, and, and so we can hold on to stories of storytelling um, and don't let them tell you that it's not powerful. Don't let them tell you that it's something effete. Don't let them tell you that it's something airy-fairy. Stories are absolutely real. Absolutely real. And are they true? Probably not. And, that, and that's part of the dilemma. Okay, we'll, we'll close with this final question. Um, so, Paul, I, I, I want to first just thank you. I, I consider you a contemporary master of narrative. And I am astounded by your humility, so pardon me for quoting you back, <laughs> but I don't book tag books much uh, anymore. And you wrote in your transatlantic, once upon a time she began, I stood at the door and listened. There isn't a story in the world that isn't in part at least addressed to the past. How important is that addressal to the past a guiding principle in your choice of topic and narrative? Um, because this, a few sentences just yeah, uh, it's, it's an incredibly important part of how I think about narrative and how I think about story, storytelling. Um, I'm not so interested in the future. Um, I am interested in the present tense. But in the moment of present tense, uh, immediately it becomes past. And Faulkner said, the past is not dead. In fact, it's not even past, um, which is so smart. Um, but wherever we were is now wherever we are. And I think that must work in a narrative sense for an author, and it surely must work for a doctor or a nurse or a medical practitioner. Wherever we were is now wherever we are. Um, and um, so this sense of the past and dealing with the past and looking at the past uh, is enormously important. I wish I had the agility to look into the future. I just don't. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, I keep wanting to be able to look into the future, but, but, but it's, 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 it's not my place. There are other authors who do it so much better than me, like people like Don and Lillo and, uh, and, and you know, many, many others. Uh, me, I just sort of like, uh, I sort of dwell in the past, and hopefully, hopefully that's going to be enough. But I have to say, uh, again, thank you to my friend, Jim Murray, um, uh, thank you to Rita, thank you to everybody uh, here, thank you for all uh, that you do, and uh, thanks for the invitation. I have to run off tonight because I have to go downtown, there's a story prize uh, uh, going on downtown, so I have to be, be downtown, but uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.